My name is Deb. I'm a covenant member here at SOMA. This is my daughter, Ellie. We're going to be reading this morning um, from John 1 and also from Isaiah 6. So if you'd like to turn to Isaiah 6 with us, that's page 330 in those blue Bibles on the seats next to you. You can follow along with Ellie as she reads Isaiah 6, and in between I'll be reading from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And he said, Go and say to, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is fell. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. 
He has made him known. The holy seed is its stump. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA, and I am really excited because it is now officially Christmas season. There's light and the darkness. There's joy coming. There's lights and trees. How many people got a tree already? How many people put it up? Good. About half the room's on it. Good job. Nice. <laughs> well done. Uh, one of the things that's so beautiful about this Christmas season is that concept of it's gotten so dark, so dark. I don't know about you guys. I was just done for like three weeks after the daylight savings time hit, right? And I'd get, I'd get out of work and I'd leave the office and it would be just pitch black. I'd be like, what is this mess? It is so dark. And in the middle of that, we celebrate light coming into the world, right? And we hang lights and we do these things to remind ourselves that even in the absolute darkest moments, there is light. And this morning is going to mark uh, the first of four, <coughs> excuse me, four messages that we're going to be doing uh, as a church about both the Advent season, right? This season where we celebrate the coming of Jesus, Christmas time, light entering the world. But also we are going to be looking at this concept of God's mission in the world. And we're going to be talking about uh, global missions. And if you think you know what that means, uh, hang with us because I think it's going to be very different maybe than what you expect. And we are going to talk about both of these things at the same time. Both this idea of light entering the world of shining in the darkness, and also God's love and plan for this entire planet. And so this morning, we're going to start in the book of Isaiah, but maybe not where you might think. Last year, we preached on the book of Isaiah for the whole time of Advent, right? And Isaiah is full of these great prophecies about the coming Messiah, and the virgin will be with child, and the prince of peace. And every year we, we, we quote these, we put them on banners, we put them on Christmas cards, we preach Easter, or, uh, Christmas sermons about these great prophecies of Isaiah. But this morning, <coughs> we're going to start in a different place. We're going to start in Isaiah 6, and we're going to talk about God's desire to make himself known. His purpose, his plan for this world to announce himself to all creation, not just humanity, but to all creation. And the context in which we're going to be dealing in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, uh, he, he comes on the scene at a very interesting time in the history of God's people. He's writing about 200, 250 years after King David lived. So the, the great and most glorious time in Israel's history when David and Solomon were on the throne and the country was overwhelmingly filled with both righteousness but also riches and conquest. There's all these great things, and this was the, the golden age of Israel. Well, about 200 years later, uh, during the, the reign of this king, Uzziah, also called Uzziah, he, he reigned for like 50 years, and it was a really good time economic prosperity, especially early in his life. He was a very humble king. He followed God's laws. But as he got older, he became increasingly arrogant, increasingly proud, increasingly self-centered, and life in Israel started to reflect that. And the people uh, started to groan underneath 
having a leader uh, who was not focused on the things that God wanted them to be focused on as an enforcer of righteousness and justice, but was really about making his own name and his own fame great. And so it's in this context that Isaiah comes to us, and he writes in the first chapter, this is, he's writing this probably around 740 B.C., and he writes this in Isaiah 1, and this is the way he describes the people of Israel. What to me, or and he's quoting God here, God is speaking, he says, What to me are the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Don't bring me any more empty offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath are the calling of convocations. I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. God is telling them, I hate it when you get together to worship me. It makes me sick. That's what God's telling his people. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds before my eyes. Bring justice. or Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. God is telling his people, hey, come, let's sit down and talk for a minute. I don't want your prayers. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your religious assemblies. I want you to seek justice for those who don't have it, for the widow, for the orphan. Come now, reason. let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat from the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. This is what God has to say about his people. So Isaiah, writing this prophecy down, looking at this this time of unbroken prosperity, 200 years after the golden days of Israel, Isaiah is looking at his nation, and his people. And he says, God is sick of this. You're being real faithful and getting together on the Sabbath and coming. You're being real faithful and presenting these offerings. But there's injustice, iniquity, corruption. It's everywhere. And Isaiah is broken and sickened by this. And God himself is saying, hey guys, it doesn't need to be like this. I can cleanse you. I can wash you. Your hands don't have to be full of murder. I can still redeem you as a people. So how does Isaiah go from everything is falling apart, this land is disgusting, to writing just a few chapters later, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
And the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What is it that happens? What does Isaiah see that makes him realize that even though everything is corrupt and broken, even though there are widows crying and orphans dying, God is going to visit his people and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which we just sang, which means God with us. What is it that happens to him? In short, Isaiah sees God himself and he sees his heart, he sees his purpose because our God has always had one singular mission from the beginning of time, before time began, all the way through the end of eternity, he has had one singular mission, to make himself known and display his glory and his greatness to all of creation. He has always been about that. His glory and his greatness, to announce it, to make us feel the weight of it. So this Advent season, as we talk about the coming of Jesus to the world, we're going to put that in context, not just of Jesus coming into the world, but also in terms of what God has always been doing, because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's great plan that he's always had. And that mission is something that God is going to invite us to participate in. He's going to reveal himself. And so we start in Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, 50 years of prosperity, 50 years of peace, of solid leadership that started to erode, and suddenly it looks like all hope is lost. The king is dead. And Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, we just spent several months in Exodus. We wound up towards the end of the, the, the very detailed instructions God gave about the tabernacle, right? Which at that time was a tent in which God dwelt. And after that, they built a temple in Jerusalem, which again had specific instructions and designs. And the idea was to call people's minds and attention to God's greatness, his presence. This is where he lived. This is where he was. And one day, Isaiah is in this temple, and he sees God. I don't know if this is a vision, if this is just the working of all the things together that were going on to make that an incredible place of worship. But Isaiah has this, this sense of God sitting high upon a throne, and his robe is filling the entire temple. God's mission is to reveal himself. And he starts with Isaiah. He shows himself to this one man. He says, here I am. This is what I'm like. And the image here, think about the train of a robe, right? You get, Think about the most, I don't know, kingly king you've ever seen in a movie, in a big flowing robe. The train of his robe, imagine a robe so long that it just billowed out throughout this entire room. That's what he's seeing overwhelmed with God sitting high on a throne, just the bigness and the weight of this. Keep that image in your mind if you can. 
we can't even think about what God looks like, right? Like we talked about this a few weeks ago in, in Exodus. Whenever anybody talks about God, the, first, the only thing they can really talk about is the floor because they immediately drop and see the floor. And that's really what Isaiah is saying. He says, I see God high and lifted up, and the next thing, I, all I can talk about is his robe that's filling the floor around me, right? He is so overwhelmed, and God is making himself known, and this is God's singular mission to display this greatness and this glory. And it says in verse 2, and above him stood the seraphim. And seraphim is a word we don't, we don't have a good translation for it. There's no way to even describe what he's seeing. So there's this word seraphim. And then he, he basically says, this is what I saw. I don't really have a word for it. Each of these beings had six wings, two covering their face, two covering his feet, and with two he flew. God's mission is glorious. It is indescribable. When God reveals himself to us, when he revealed himself to Isaiah, there weren't even good words for it. He's like, yeah, I saw a seraphim. Like, I saw something that we can't even translate, and it looked like people flying around with six wings. The kinds of things that if you just described to somebody else, they'd think you were nuts. It's so beyond what the mind can conceive of. And this is what Isaiah is seeing. He's on the floor. He can see above God. He can see these angels. And in verse 3, it says that the, they called to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heavenly armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. I could spend the rest of the day just right here. There's so much going on that these angels, these seraphim are just flying and they just say over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This idea of holy, this is a word that we use a lot. It's a very churchy kind of word. But what it speaks to is the separateness the differentness, the otherness of God. God is completely outside of his creation. He is something else entirely. Whatever we are, whatever this is, God is set apart from it. Not just one time, but three times. And the, the ancients used to use this in language. They would repeat something over and over and over again for emphasis. And if you really wanted to be like, yeah, I really mean it, you'd say it twice. And they say it three times. Like, you can't understand how different God is than everything else. Even in the concept of this temple where Isaiah is, the angels are like, nah. God is holy. He is other. He is other. He is other. He is beyond indifferent. Let, let, let's try something for a minute. I need you guys to participate with me. We're going to try something. We're going to call out each side of the room. We're going to do this. I want to hear good, I want to hear good and loud. This side of the room, we're, gonna, we're just going to call out, holy, holy, holy. Then you guys say, is the Lord God Almighty. Let's we'll just do this back and forth. Let's do it a few times. Let's, let's practice. Stand up and yell it at each other. Stand up. Stand up. Let's get a sense of this. These are angelic beings, right? 
the scriptures say in other places, their voices are like thunder. Let's hear it. Stand up. Give it, give it out. Amen. God is holy. Go ahead. You got all you don't have a seat. He's holy. I just I that sense of overwhelmingness, we can't even replicate that here. Even with a few hundred a few hundred people, a few thousand people, a few million people, we could not replicate the heaviness of what's going on in this moment. And he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the whole earth is full of his glory. This word glory that, that these angels are singing, it's a different word than what we would think of to mean like, oh, high praise or uh, honor. This word means like heft or weight. The whole earth is full of the hefty weightiness of God. When God talks about his glory, what he's talking about is the physical presence of himself. And this started before, right, when we, we saw Moses in the burning bush, right? There's this bush and it's burning and it, it can't be put out and it's just like this eternal flame. It is a physical representation of God. And when they wandered through the, the desert, what, what accompanied them in the desert? By day it was a a cloud, right? And by night it was pillar of fire. These are like these these are God's glory. It is his physical manifestation of his presence. Jesus tells us that God is spirit. And he looks for people who worship him in spirit and truth. So if God is spirit, something with no tangible form, he displays his glory because that is something that we can feel. God himself can't be felt, but his glory, the weight of him, the shininess of him, the excellence of him, this, this can be felt, this can be known. And Isaiah says that the angels say he's filling the whole earth with it. He's not just filling the temple He's not just filling Jerusalem. He is seeking to fill the whole earth with his glory. He wants the whole earth to feel how big he is, how grand, how marvelous. That is what is happening. They are saying God is holy. He is other. He is set apart. He is different. He ain't like us. But the whole earth will bear the weight of how magnificent and how wonderful he is. God has always had one mission to make himself known, to display that glory to all of creation. We could have started this, ser this series in Genesis 1. We could have started it in John 1. We could have started it in like pretty much any book of the Bible and any passage of the Bible. We're starting it in Isaiah 6 because the similarities are so obvious between what the people and the nation of Israel and Judah were going through and what we are going through. But God's always only had this one plan, this one purpose, to make himself known. And when he does, 
when he makes himself known, his, mush, his mission puts us in our place. Verses 4 and verses 5. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. We, did, we didn't get that loud. We, we, we did our best, but we didn't get loud enough to shake the, th- the foundations of the thresholds. And the whole house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty. The only possible response to seeing the weight, the glory, the majesty, the splendor of God is to say, I am, I'm done. I'm done for. And he doesn't just point the finger at himself. He looks at his whole nation. He looks first at himself and he looks at his whole nation. And he's just like, I'm lost. My whole people are lost. I've seen the king now. I, the king just died, right? That's what he's thinking. He's thinking the king is dead. And God reveals himself and he says, oh, no. The king's not dead. The king is on his throne and we're done for. So often, instead of being focused on God's mission to make himself and his glory known, we focus our eyes entirely on all the problems that everybody else has. And we say, man, when daddy gets home, he's going to deal with you all. And it would have been really easy to look at all of those horrible things that were happening in Isaiah 1 and be like, for Isaiah to be like, oh, Israel's had it now. Judah's had it now. The nation's had it now. I've seen God. He's coming. But his first response is to realize that God puts us in our place first. Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Yeah, I come from a people of unclean lips, but woe is me. I'm lost. He sees God, his holiness, his grandeur, and he is just in utter despair, broken. Forget all of the self-righteousness about all the horrible things that were happening in Israel. He's seen the king, and he knows he's doomed. But God's mission doesn't just put us in our place. God's mission inherently seeks to redeem renew and restore us verses six and seven then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and he said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for God didn't reveal himself to Isaiah to obliterate him to destroy him to end him Though that was a very natural conclusion to seeing something so great and so indescribable that it could fill the entire earth. God was seeking to redeem, to atone for, to restore Isaiah and ultimately all of his people. His mission is redemptive. And so he takes fire and he touches it to Isaiah's lips and says, okay, I've burned it off. 
This is sort of horrifying. I don't think we should get over, we're going to come back to this concept here in a little bit. But you can imagine how terrifying this would be, right? Isaiah just got done saying, I am lost. And now this winged being with six wings is flying down, holding a burning coal. What do you think he thinks is going to happen? Right? He's bringing fire down. This is it. I'm doomed. The angel's seen me. He realizes I'm here. I don't belong here. He's coming with fire. He's going to burn me alive. That's what Isaiah thinks is about to happen. Wouldn't you? Isn't that the most natural thing in the world? This horrifying creature that, whose voice is so loud it's shaking the foundations of the temple and he's flying down with fire. He had to think he was done for. Instead, he touches it lightly to his lips and he says, this, is told, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atones for it. And then he hears the voice of the Lord. Up until now, he's only heard the voice of the angels. Once his sin is atoned for, he starts to hear God's voice, what God himself is saying. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. God's mission, the same mission that he's always been about, it's a mission that invites us to join in it. After he reveals his glory to Isaiah, he says, who's going to go for us? Who's going to tell the people about what they've seen? And, you know, I've heard, I've heard people talk about this verse before, like this was this bold, here am I, send to me, right? Like they use this for these like grand cries for, for people to, to get up their courage and, and go overseas and tell people about God or whatever. But I don't, I don't think that makes a lot of sense in the context. I think it's much more Isaiah almost whispering, right? Here am I, send me. Barely daring to speak but knowing he's so overcome by what he's just seen and at the mercy he's just received. Because this is mercy. He does deserve to be annihilated. He is a man of unclean lips. You know, he was, <laughs> you know how he had to feel about the people around him. You know when he's writing these prophecies, he had to be like, man, you all are a mess. And he had to be thinking, how can you, and he's got to be, you know, we all feel it, right? We see things on the news, and we get really upset, and we get angry. And our anger switches from this righteous, um, true horror at sin, and it gets self-righteous real fast. I wouldn't do that. I'm better than you. This nation's crazy, but I'm not. And I think that's probably where Isaiah was. And instead, in this moment, he's now been redeemed and very humbly and very smallly, just says, here am I. I can't help but talk about these things that I've seen. And then God reveals that his mission, the same mission that he's always had, this mission is going to set things right. He's going to fix the broken. He is going to restore and renew. But he's also going to judge Isaiah 6, 9 through 12, and, and he said, the Lord said, go and say to this people, that same people that we've been talking about, go and say to this people, 
Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. The answers are all around you, folks. And God just says, keep on, keep on hearing, not getting it. Keep on seeing my mercy, my justice, and not doing it. Make the hearts of this people dull, their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they'd see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God is saying, look, my truth is there. It's been there. I've told you all how to live. He's given his law to the people of Israel. They know better. They're, they're doing all these sacred assemblies, right? They're gathering together. They're hearing. Theoretically, they're hearing from God and from his word. They're hearing all this stuff, and they just aren't getting it. And God says, go on then. Go on. Keep showing up. Keep showing up at the synagogue, at the temple. Keep showing up. Keep hearing. Keep seeing and not getting it. And then I said, Isaiah says, how long, Lord? How long? How long are we going to put up with this? I think most of us have probably been there recently, right? How long do we have to keep talking about this stuff? How long is it going to be broken? How long? Come on, God, how long? And he says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Setting things right is a messy business. Setting things right isn't easy or clean. Setting things right means things are going to be toppled. Look, we don't love, it's not our, nobody's favorite topic, right, to talk about God's judgment. Nobody loves to be like, oh, God is judging. I love that. We have to accept First of all, that a holy God, a holy, holy, holy God who is different and other outside of us and our rules above and beyond all things, that he has the right to do whatever he's going to do. And God's judgment when it comes is not unfair. It's well earned. We feel it. You know, this whole concept that, that God should never judge anything that's wrong. That's the kind of thing that can only exist in a very insulated, wealthy, happy, everything's relatively peaceful and stable part of the world. Because most of us in the world, most people in the world see real horror, see real injustice, real cruelty. Most people see children in cages and say, there's no way that should happen. This is wrong. This is evil. God, why don't you do something? Most of us that live in war-torn countries, that live under politically oppressive regimes, who have rights and freedoms taken away, have no problem with God's judgment. People are crying out for it all over the world because there's real evil and real wickedness. And if we say God shouldn't judge anything, then we're saying that stuff's not really that serious. And we like to do that here in our country in our day and age because we're guilty of it. <laughs> because we don't really want God's judgment to come down because it would come down on us. On the systems and the structures that we've made. And that's what Isaiah is saying, right? It's the same thing. 
We worship God, and he's sick of it. <laughs> because it's not real, because at the same time, it comes with brutality. And God says, how long are the people not going to listen to me? Until I absolutely rip them out of the land. <laughs> Until I take it all away from them. How long are they not going to pay attention, God? How long is the injustice going to go on? He says, till I take them out of the land. There's lots of other super encouraging and super uplifting prophecies in Isaiah. But there's always this sense that God's mission will set things right. It's going to make it all okay. But that is going to necessitate judgment. Which is why... If our response is to look at all the horrible things that happen and be like, well, yeah, none of that's my fault. I'm not responsible for any of that. See, I'm one of the good people and everybody else is one of the bad people. My political party, that's not, it's none of this is our fault. My city, my elected officials, my family, there's no blood on our hands. It's all somebody else. There's no way to look at God Almighty in his temple, high and lifted up, and say anything other than, woe is me. There's no way to see the heaviness of him and say anything else than, oh, yeah, ah, my lips are unclean. My people's lips are unclean. I've seen the Lord Almighty. But our God's singular mission to make himself known, to display his glory, his greatness to all creation, it will bring hope from the ashes, verse 13. And God says, even if only a tenth remain in the land, if I take out 90% of you all, if I kill them by the sword, if they're shipped off to other countries, if there's only a tenth left, it will be burned again like a terebinth, which is just like another kind of tree, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains even when the tree is gone. But then he says, the holy seed is in that stump. So God's message of hope to his people is, you guys are so far off course but we saw it in chapter one, right? He's like, if you just turn, if you just acknowledge that your sins are scarlet, if you'd say, yes, we're broken, we're dirty, and our lips are unclean. He's like, I'd clean you. I'd redeem you. I'd save you. And even if I have to rip you all out, there will be a stump, and in that stump will be a seed. And we'll talk about, in the next couple weeks, that seed that grows out of the stump. And we will talk about all the other amazing ways that God's mission to show his glory and his heaviness, all the ways that God unfolds that. Because in the end, his hope, his desire is not for destruction. He's not trying to wipe people off the face of the earth. He's calling constantly for hundreds of years saying, here I am, patiently waiting. And we sit and we say, how long? How long do we have to put up with it? How long is it going to go on? And he says, until I've, until I've done my thing, until everybody's ripped out. And this is the mission, to make himself known, his glory known, 
the heaviness of him known. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the fact that God is this big, this holy, this awesome, this amazing? What do we do with our own brokenness, the brokenness of our whole land? What do we do with the fact that what we deserve is to be burned up whole (laughs) and instead we receive atonement? How do we respond to God's mission? I think it's pretty straightforward, really. First, we respond in worship. We respond in worship. We acknowledge what we're looking at. A God who's big and holy and awesome and glorious, who's not like us, who doesn't have to follow our rules, who's not subject to our timetables and our limitations. We acknowledge that that's who he is, and we worship him. Second, we confess our sins. We confess our sins. We say, yeah, I'm, I'm guilty. I've done it. I'm responsible for the things that are happening around me. I'm responsible for hurting people. I'm responsible for causing pain to people. I'm responsible for injustice. I'm responsible for these things. It's on me. My lips are unclean. My people's lips are unclean. And if God doesn't save me, I'm lost. Because I've seen the Lord God Almighty. And then we accept his security. We accept that when the angel comes and when the lips are touched, we accept that when we receive that mercy that it's legit. Isaiah didn't fall down on his knees after the angel touched his lips and be like, yeah, that's great and all, but I'm still really scared. Because God's still just as big. He's allowed me to come close, but he's still just as big. His weightiness is still just as heavy. We have to accept the security that his forgiveness, that his mercy is for real. That his mercy is just as real as his greatness and his grandeur. That it's part and parcel of the same thing. That when you see his greatness and his potential for judgment, that we also see his mercy. Are you beginning to see why we celebrate every Sunday the way we do? Why we open with a time of worship, why we go to a time of confession, why we celebrate assurance. This is the only natural response to God and his mission. Worship and confession and embracing assurance. And then we respond to his call to go. That's why we do the offering time afterwards, right? Because it's just a physical reminder Not like, oh, give money and then God's happy. He already said in chapter 1 of Isaiah that it doesn't go very far. He's not really interested in your offerings. He doesn't need them. That's great. He's good. We do that each week just as a physical reminder that we have to take action. There has to be something that comes out of this. That we say, here am I, send me. Not in this grandiose way of, of... atoning for our guilt, not because we have some great imperial ambition to make the whole world like us, but out of sincere awe and a privilege. God doesn't need us. Jesus said he could make the rocks cry out if he wanted to. He doesn't need you to fulfill this great mission that he's had 
that he's been about from the beginning of time. There's nothing that depends on you. He gives us the privilege of responding to his greatness and his goodness by saying, here am I, send me. So how do we respond? We respond with worship, with confession, by embracing assurance, and by going when he calls us to go. This is going to be our context for celebrating Christmas this year. That God's glory is going to come into the world in the person of Jesus. That we are going to bear that glory to the world as the church. That that is the most natural thing in the world. Now when we talk about global missions... We are just talking about the same mission of God that he's always been about, that he's always had, and that everything he's ever done has driven to fulfill. And we're going to talk about our privilege of participating in it. The advantage that we have for having seen God. And that we didn't have to have a flaming coal touch our lips. We come to the part of our morning where we celebrate communion where we recognize that instead of an angel flying down with a hot, burning coal, Jesus takes some bread and he says, this is my body given for you. And he took wine and he said, this is my blood given for you. And it's soft and it's sweet and there's no fear. Because our God didn't redeem us with fire. He redeemed us with himself, with his own body. And when we take communion, when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we should be saying, I have seen the glory and the heaviness of God. I have seen the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies, and he came to me as a baby in a manger, and he lived as a poor peasant, and he gave his body and he gave his blood for me so that I wouldn't be annihilated at the sight of my God because our God is with us. Our God is Emmanuel with us in that temple with us. Let's pray. God, you are so great and so heavy and so majestic. Lord, we, we're just people and we are broken and we're sinful and we're stupid and we don't listen and our eyes are shut and we don't deserve to see even the hem of your robe filling the temple. And Lord, we just Praise you for giving us the opportunity to worship you, to confess to you, and to celebrate your son Jesus. Thank you for showing us your glory, the glory of the one and only, coming from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We love you, God. Amen.